You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Amen, amen. Thank you, Lindsay. Church family, good to see you here this morning. Hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday and uh, glad you're with us here this Sunday as we kick off Advent together. If you have got a Bible with you, I'd love to invite you to turn with me to Colossians chapter one this week. And uh, if I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Shay Sumlin. I'm one of the pastors here. Just grateful to be with you. By the way, thank you for your grace. Realize we have a stripeless parking lot outside, and that's because the company that came to resurface it uh, surfaced it, and then that night their trailer was stolen. Um, and uh, and so we're waiting on the trailer to be found. If you see a striping trailer, I don't know what it looks like, but if you see one out there in Dallas, notify authorities, and then we'll uh, get some stripes here next week. <laughs> Northway Church, everybody, just keeps coming, baby. But we're going to see that Jesus is still on the throne today. So that's where we're going. Colossians chapter one. It is Advent, as Lindsay said, and this is a period of the four weeks leading up to Christmas, where as a church, we have the opportunity to prepare our hearts in both celebration of Christ's first coming, the birth of Jesus in which salvation came to us, and then also in anticipation of Christ's second coming, his return in which the consummation of that salvation will fully and finally take place. And we set our mind and our affections upon Jesus and this gift that we have been given in him this season and for always. And in this series that we're entering into here over the next four weeks, we're calling it Incarnate Glory. And the hope in this series is for us as a church really to behold the glory of Jesus Christ as we kind of meditate upon and examine various angles of Jesus's incarnation, God becoming flesh, um, and uh, that would lead us to a greater exaltation and worship of him. And as is true with anything, the more that you can consider something's origin and its progression throughout history and Uh, of what it has become today and ultimately what that something will become down the road, what it exists for, uh, you you behold glory in it. And I'll give you an example of this. We do this in lots of different ways, but just a few weeks ago, I had the privilege of taking our staff to the George Bush Presidential Library, uh, walking through the immigration exhibit that's over there, but also as you tour through there, how many of y'all been to the George Bush Presidential Library? Number of y'all here in Dallas on the SMU campus. And uh, you get one of the opportunities to go into a replica of the Oval Office and you get to see a replica of the desk that President George Bush, uh, George W. had, uh, as well as several other presidents. And what you come to find out is this is no ordinary desk. This is a glorious desk as far as desks are concerned. And uh, it's called the Resolute Desk. And you don't really appreciate it. Just be any other desk until you really understand the origin story and and where this test has come from, that this, back in 1854, I believe it was, this was a ship called the HMS Resolute, and it was abandoned in the Arctic Circle on an expedition. And about a year later, it was found by an American ship floating, uh, you know, uh, uh, in, in the Arctic Circle. And that American ship took that ship in, we restored that ship, and then we gifted it to England, and sent it over to England where they used that ship for a number of years until about 1879. And then they decommissioned the ship and Queen Victoria then took that ship 
took the timbers from that ship and made three desks out of it, of which one they sent to uh, President, I think, Rutherford Hayes here in the United States as a gift. And it became the Resolute Desk from the HMS Resolute. And then that president used it, other presidents used it, eventually just got put away for a while, um, was used by Eisenhower, JFK, uh, it was in the Smithsonian at one point, and then Carter pulled it out of the Smithsonian. He started using it. And since Carter, it has been used by every president, even up to today with Joe Biden. It's sitting in the Oval Office right now. This is a glorious desk that when you, if I just showed you a desk, you'd be like, cool. But when you understand, man, the origin of where this thing has come from, the purpose that is beheld, those who have beheld it, this desk becomes glorious in a new way. And for us, in many ways, that's kind of what we're set out to do in this series, to behold the glory of Jesus for who he is eternally pre-incarnate and then in his incarnation and the glory that is still to come in the preeminence of Jesus. And that's how we're gonna look at this series. Jesus above us is who we'll look at this week. Next week, we'll look at Jesus who is like us, then Jesus who is among us, Jesus who is for us, and ultimately Jesus who is with us. And that's what we'll look at here in this series. But for this week, we're gonna be in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. And we're gonna be looking at the idea of Jesus above us. In this message, we're not going to the lowly manger in Bethlehem just yet. Instead, we are going to the heights of heaven. We will ascend here to the heights of heaven as we meditate upon what theologians call the preeminence of Christ, the superior glory that is Jesus, but specifically in his pre-incarnate position before he came and took on flesh in his human state. And we will do so, so that we can savor the majesty of who Jesus is when we behold him in that manger. That we can understand how glorious it is that God came as Emmanuel, God with us in the flesh. Colossians chapter one, specifically verses 15 through 20, is considered by many scholars as probably the first Christmas carol. It's considered to be one of the oldest hymns that we have of Jesus, uh, that when Paul records these words, many believe he's actually citing a hymn that was circulating in the first century. And the way in which these verses, 15 through 20, are recorded and written in the Greek um, is that of a song. They're written chiastically, the Greek letter chi, it looks like an X in our alphabet. And the way that the, the verse goes in the original language is very poetic. It's like an X. You have these two um, complementary ideas, these two complementary stanzas that are communicating two different points, but from the uh, two different sides of the same coin, but they are connected by a bridge in the middle that holds everything together, that communicates the central truth concerning the preeminence and the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things that we are to behold when we look upon that baby in the manger. And so this is written like a song because it is, it's a hymn and it's answering the question, why is Jesus preeminent and supreme 
over all things. And there are the two stanzas you'll see here are communicating two points about why Jesus is preeminent. First, he is the Lord of all creation. And second, because he is the head of the church. These two reasons are the anchor reasons why Jesus is preeminent over all things. So let's look at the first idea that Jesus is preeminent because he is the Lord of creation. You see this in verses 15 through 17 when Paul says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. Three things that I love to point out here concerning Jesus as it pertains to his preeminence over the creation and the cosmos around us. And that is his authority, his agency, and his aim as the Lord of creation. You see his authority that shows he is the Lord of creation there in verse 15, the idea that he is and has always been eternally God, never anything less. In verse 15, Paul says he is the image of the invisible God, meaning that if you want to know what God is like, and we all do, right? Because God is invisible. He is spirit. Um, he is unseen. We all wanna know what God is like. And Paul says, then all you have to do is behold Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That word image, by the way, as it's translated here, isn't used, it's translated icon. It's not used like we would use the term icon or image, meaning something that is similar or resembles the original. No, rather the way that this is used here is that which is the exact correspondence of the full embodiment of, making that which is invisible, visible. This is who Jesus is. Now, the heretics of Paul's day that were surrounding the church of Colossae believed that Jesus was just an emanation of God. Jesus was not God. He was an emanation of God. This was a heresy all in the later centuries known as Arianism that believed the idea that Jesus wasn't fully God. And this is stemmed from Greek thought, uh, Platonic thought, or Plato believed that spirit is good, matter is evil. Jesus couldn't be embodied in human flesh because that's evil. So he has to be some form of emanation of God. He has to be less than God, derived from God, but not God himself. And Jesus, Paul says, is quite the opposite of that heretical thought. He is God. In fact, in verse 19, he's gonna say, the fullness of God dwells in him. In other words, Jesus is not just the incomplete representation of God. He is the complete revelation of God. He is God in the flesh. The author of Hebrews said the same thing in Hebrews chapter one, verse three. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And to all those of Paul's day who would reject that idea that Jesus is less than, 
Paul said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4, the reason that's true, in their case, the God of this world, that is Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so what is true of the Father is true of the Son in both nature and essence. You see Jesus, you see God. And as God, Jesus rules and reigns over all things, which is the idea also in verse 15 when Paul says, he is the firstborn of all creation. Now, both heretics in that day, as well as many cults over the centuries, have used this verse as a misunderstanding of this text in order to build an entire false doctrine about Jesus. They take that term firstborn to believe that Jesus is a created being just like the rest of us, only that he was just the first created being and then we came after him. But that's not what is being said here. This is not first century Arianism, nor is this 21st century Jehovah's Witness theology that would say Jesus was a created being. No, that's not how the word is used here. The word firstborn here, as well as many other places in scripture, carries the idea not of order and sequence, but rather of rank and supremacy, that of primacy in one's rule. We still use it today as well. When we call the president's wife the first lady, it's not because she's the first one ever created. It's not that she's the first president's wife that there ever was. She is the first lady or there is the first daughter. Maybe one day there'll be the first man. Whatever that will be, it's the idea of rank and primacy and, and primacy rather than order and sequence. It's stating that when it comes to all the things that have been created in this earth, whether visible or invisible, Christ sits in a position of rule over that creation. We would say that he is the Lord of creation. So simply by the sheer fact that he is God and he is eternal, that is he is preexistent, he's not created, he has authority now, over everything seen and unseen. He is preeminent over all of it. But not just his authority proves his preeminency, but also his, his agency proves his preeminency. You see that in verse 16, Paul tells us here that not only is Jesus not a created being, he is actually the very being that created everything else. Notice his agency in verse 16, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him. Uh, John would say the same thing in John chapter one, verse three, all things were made through him and without him, was not anything made that was made. The, the means or the agent by which the Father chose to create was through the Son. Anything that you can think of that belongs to time, anything that you can think of that belongs to eternity, things visible, 
things invisible, things material, things immaterial, Jesus made it. This is the truth of scripture that tells us Jesus is the creator of everything around us. The whole cosmos was made by Jesus. This was not a big bang theory, an explosion that brought an evolutionary process into order. There was a creator and the agency of that creation was Jesus Christ, the second member of the triune God who created everything that we see. And notice he's not only the agent who creates everything, he is the agent who also sustains everything that has been created. You see this in verse 17. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. It's amazing to think that that baby being held in a manger in Bethlehem is himself the one who holds the whole universe together as I speak. He holds this whole thing together. And this is so fascinating. Wish we had time to nerd out on this, but so many scientists all understand the idea that our universe is made up of a lot of atoms. Atoms are the embodiment of everything that we see around us. And yet the one thing scientists cannot figure out to this day is in the very nucleus of the atom, how, how these things are, how this atom is held together because scientific law says that opposites attract like two magnets turned to negative sides pulling. And yet you have here an atom in which it should explode on itself. And yes, it, it holds together and they can't figure out why. They just use the phrase, there is a strong nuclear force that holds this atom together but they don't know what that strong nuclear force is. And yet right here in verse 17, we're told who, not what, but who that strong nuclear force is. It is Jesus who holds all things together. Martin Lowe Jones once said this, our universe is not a chaos, it's a cosmos. There is consistency, laws, cohesion, Ions and electrons working together, why? Because Jesus ordered it this way. Science and theology are not combative. They are purposed. He is before all. He is sovereign over it all. He brought it all together and he sustains it all. Without him, it would all collapse. And so Jesus, Paul says, is preeminent in his authority and his agency in creation. But also notice the preeminence of his aim in creation. You see this at the end of verse 16, I left out two words. Not only does he hold, all, is he before all things and hold things all together, but he tells at the end of verse 16, the, the universe was created through him and for him. Two words there at the end of verse 16, for him. In other words, Jesus is not just the author and the agent of creation, he's the point of it. The aim and the object of all that has been made is reflecting upon Jesus. 
Paul said the same thing. We just read this a few months ago in Romans chapter 11, verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Meaning all things, whether in heaven or on earth, were created not only by him, but ultimately in order to find their fulfillment in him. That is why it is so dangerous, by the way, for you and I to try to find our ultimate joy, our ultimate identity, and our ultimate purpose in the creation around us, including other human beings. It is so dangerous because it will implode upon itself. The point of your joy, the object of your affections, the object of your identity cannot be found in the creation. It must be found in the creator. That is where it all comes from. That this baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, isn't just a lullaby within creation that we sing at Christmas. He is the Lord of creation to whom the whole world is meant to exalt in worship. We see this idea in Psalm 95, verses three through six. See if this doesn't encapsulate everything that we just read. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. This is what Christmas is about, worshiping the Lord of all creation. But it doesn't just stop there. There's a second stanza in this hymn. There is one more stanza here that parallels what we just saw one in which you can almost feel the crescendo beginning at Christmas as to why Jesus came in the first place. And that is to be the head of the church. You see this in verses 18 through 20. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Two main things I wanna point out here concerning Jesus as it pertains to his preeminence, not over just creation, but the church. And the first is, we see it at the end of that passage I just read in verses 19 through 20, his redemption. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile him to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul tells us lying there in that manger, within that baby, the fullness of God dwells. Literally, the term fullness means the sum total of. The sum total of God is there in human flesh, in that cave, lying in that manger in Bethlehem, Emmanuel, God with us. 
So why did he come? The answer is, according to this text, to reconcile all things to himself. You see, in the book of Genesis, we are told that God creates the world, obviously through the agent Jesus Christ, creates everything around us, the plants, the vegetation, the animals, uh, the geography all around us, the, the cosmos around us in the universe, and the crown jewel of creation, mankind himself. God creates everything, and he says it is good. But in that creation account, in Genesis chapter 3, we see that sin enters the picture and corrupts everything that God had made, distorts it from the image that is meant to reflect our triune God. And it happens in that moment when the first man and the first woman chose to exchange the truth of God for a lie and rebel against the very hand that created them, that breathed life into them. And a curse was set forth by God and it fractured everything. This curse that sent over the corruption of sin on the earth, this curse was put in place whereby now both the physical creation as well as mankind is fractured and alienated from God eternally. But in the midst of that curse in Genesis chapter three, in the midst of all this chaos that sin has ushered in, God gave hope, a promise that one day he would send a redeemer who would come to this creation that, was, that he created that was fractured and broken because of sin. And through this redeemer, he would reconcile it all back to himself making it new again. And here we see that that savior is Jesus Christ. He's that redeemer, God's own son, who came to save and to reconcile and establish once again, peace between us and God. Now, how did he do that? He did that through his own blood shed upon a cross. And this is the good news that ultimately will culminate, not at Christmas, but at Easter when Jesus himself would go to the cross and take the death that you and I deserved because of our sin. And on that cross, he would take, as Isaiah 53 says, the sins of all humanity and would take those sins off of us and place it upon him. And he would feel the full weight of the wrath or the justice of God coming down upon him. And in that moment on that cross, his blood would be shed in order to atone, which is a word that means to cover our sin. Only there can something so red make something so white and can cleanse us of our sin by putting our faith in Jesus, not in our own works. His righteousness is given to us and our sin is given to him and his blood covers that sin and satisfies the wrath of God in our place and on our behalf. But it didn't just end there. In Christ's death on the cross and his burial in that grave. No, there is another angle at this that Paul shows us that establishes and exalts the preeminence of Christ over this blood-bought church that he has purchased. And that is his triumphant resurrection 
that we see, not just his redemption, but his resurrection. We see that earlier there in verse 18. He's the head of the body, the church. Why? Because he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. You see the matching correlation there between the cross and creation. Jesus is not just the firstborn of creation, the one who rules and reigns over creation. He's also the firstborn over the dead. He is the one who rules and reigns over death itself. Three days after Jesus's death, that stone was rolled away, the tomb was empty, and Jesus was found to be alive. Like a victorious king, he conquered our greatest enemies, sin, Satan, and even death for us. And when you defeat death, not only for yourself, but all those who have put faith in you, who are found to be in you, your preeminence is established forever. This is the point of why Jesus came to that manger in Bethlehem, to live the life that we have failed to live, to die the death that you and I deserved to die. And that by the blood of his cross and his triumphant resurrection from the grave, that by us placing our faith fully in him and not in of ourselves, he might reconcile us back to God once and for all. And you can see the result of it, by the way, in verse 21 and following, you who were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. Jesus came to reconcile all things. He is preeminent. Where is he now, by the way? Well, he's enthroned on high. After his triumphant resurrection, 40 days later, he ascended to the right hand of God where he is enthroned. And he sits there until that appointed day when God shall commission him to return to the earth. He shall return to judge evil once and for all and reconcile the fullness of the cosmos back to himself. But make no mistake, right now, Jesus is the one who rules and reigns over his creation. Though we don't see everything perfectly right now under the rule of Christ just yet, one day everything will be in subjection to him. All things under his feet. And starting either right now that happens when you and I willingly bend the knee in faith and surrender to Jesus Christ as our Savior and our Lord being reconciled to him by his blood, or certainly one day when every knee shall bow by force when he overthrows all those who have rejected him. Y'all, this is what Christmas is about. Let us not rush so quickly to the lowly manger in Bethlehem before we first consider the preeminence of Christ that ruled and reigns over all creation. Jesus, who is the exact essence and nature of God, who is God, preeminent creator, sustainer, and redeemer of all things, who came to save us. When we reflect deeply upon this text, we see that Jesus is much more than just a mere baby in the manger or a mere sentiment on a Hallmark card. 
when we look upon and when we contemplate that child in Bethlehem this Christmas, let us behold his preeminent majesty in such a way that would lead us to awe and wonder and worship. You know, I gotta tell you, some messages, when you preach a message and it comes to the application point, some messages have a believe application where you need to believe upon this truth. Some messages have a behave application. Here's what we need to do in obedience to this truth. And some messages, quite frankly, simply lead us to behold. And that is this text. The only application really is in verse 18, that in all things he might be preeminent. And that's really the question for us today. Is Jesus Christ preeminent in your life? He is already preeminent, whether you accept that or not. He already is. The question is, have you received that preeminence? Has he taken the preeminent position in your heart? Does he have the preeminent position in your singleness? Does he have the preeminent position in your marriage? Does he have the preeminent position in your work? Does he have the preeminent position in your finances? Does he have the preeminent position in your life? That is the only question. When Jesus is not preeminent in your life, all those other things that I mentioned will become disordered. The first place that we have to look when we have disorder in areas of our life is the preeminent position of Christ in that thing. Christ is the one who is Lord of creation. He is the head of the church and he has come to save us so that in all things, he might reconcile us back to himself, that he might be preeminent in every area of our life. This Christmas, let us do some reordering the heresies of the first century where Jesus was viewed as less than is no different than in the 21st century. The challenges that we have in Christmas is a culture that beckons us for Jesus to be nothing but mere sentiment. Jesus to be simply the wallpaper on the background of your desktop. But he is much more than that. He is supreme. He is preeminent in all things. May we consider him in such so that when we get to that manger, we can behold him for who he truly is. Let's pray. Father, we worship the name of King Jesus above all other names. God, would you help us this Christmas not to settle for the mere trappings that our culture seeks to feed us about who Jesus is, that he might be some less than form of who he really is as the fullness of God, preeminent over all things. Oh God, would you help us by your spirit to behold King Jesus for whom he truly is, that this Christmas and every day of our lives, we might worship him and exalt him in his rightful position as the Lord of all creation and the head of the church whom he has redeemed that in all things he might be preeminent. We pray this for your glory and as such for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. 
A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.